mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In Chapter 5, we are still processing the assembly ball. Chapter 4, as you might remember, was Jane and Elizabeth conferring about the ball, just the two of them. Today, we're talking about Chapter 5, when the whole Lucas family, who are neighbors of the Bennets, come over to the Bennets' house to discuss everything that happened at the previous night's event. The gossip confirms a few things. One, that Bingley seemed to really like Jane. And two, that Darcy was a total jerk to Lizzie. Darcy's jerkiness is discussed at length, and it is decided that his pride is obviously the problem. Charlotte Lucas, a close friend of Lizzie's, says that it's fair that Darcy is so proud. Elizabeth says that she could more easily forgive Darcy's pride, except that he'd wounded hers. Chapter 6 is about Darcy and Lizzie being thrown together again and again. The Bennett sisters go to Netherfield, and Lizzie and Darcy see each other there. There are various other gatherings around town in which the two see one another. During this time, Lizzie digs in her heels that Darcy is a confusing jerk. But Darcy is realizing that Lizzie is more than someone who's just been rejected by all other men. We also overhear some amazing conversations in this chapter. For example, there's a key conversation in Chapter 6 between Charlotte Lucas and Elizabeth. These two lifelong friends are discussing whether it's good or bad that Jane isn't flirting more with Mr. Bingley. Lizzie is relieved that Jane isn't publicly flirting with Bingley. Charlotte tells Lizzie what a realtor said to me once. It's easier to get out of a deal than into one. And so Charlotte tells Lizzie that Jane has to flirt to secure Bingley, even at the risk of embarrassing herself, and even though Jane doesn't know Bingley very well. Here is Professor Roxanne Eberly on this conversation. Well, one of the things that... I really have often called attention to in teaching the novel is the dichotomy between design and desire. So very early in the novel, Charlotte and Elizabeth have that really powerful discussion where Charlotte says that Jane should reveal her feelings more to Charles Bingley. And Elizabeth said, you know, why would she do that? She doesn't have designs. And Charlotte is really trying to make a space for agency, I think. And her designs win 
in a way that is quite consistent through the text. And she's very clear-sighted. I need to have a role. I need to be able to support myself. And that's, I think, difficult for us to read because we read her as, in fact, succumbing to marriage. But I think that Charlotte models something between desire and design in achieving what a male uh, figure in the period would have called a competency or maintenance. Charlotte is a job hunter, ambitious and cutthroat. She could also be seen as a bit of a mercenary or nihilist when it comes to marriage. She believes that two people who don't know each other at all have just as much of a chance at happiness in marriage as two people who love each other at the beginning of their marriage. This point of view on marriage is so absurd to Lizzie that she says to Charlotte, I don't even think that you think that. It's interesting to see the way that that theory bears out in the novel. Lizzie and Darcy start out hating each other. Bingley and Jane start out liking each other. Charlotte and Mr. Collins don't really like or know one another. We know what Charlotte thinks about courtship and what Lizzie thinks about courtship, but it is far more difficult to suss out what Austin thinks about courtship. Here is Professor Aisha Ramachandran on the confusing representation of love, marriage, and courtship that Austin writes for us. This is, this is where I say that I think that the novel tries to have it both ways, right? And this is where I think as an adult, I feel very angry with Pride and Prejudice and with Jane Austen, where it discloses for us just how terrible for women these choices and compromises are. But at the same time, it covers it up, right, with these fictions of romance that make everything okay, when in actually in real life, those solutions are rare, <laughs> right, and often not durable. Professor Ramachandran is saying that Pride and Prejudice is both critiquing the marriage mart while simultaneously romanticizing it. And so the novel is confusing in its romantic politics. The thing that many of us agree with at the end of these two chapters is that Lizzie is our heroine, who we will follow and who we want to follow. We are in her head and engaging in her dialogue more than anyone else's. We map her theories and her desires and her observations above all else. And in Lizzie, we've been given a hero who laughs at herself. So even when we do find her ridiculous, we want to laugh with her and not at her. Here is Professor Tara Menon on how Lizzie is being structurally set up as the absolute hero of Pride and Prejudice. I think often now people read what I would say against the grain and they will say something like, I love Lydia the best. And that's fine, but you don't really because you might extrapolate out from the text and imagine a character like Lydia that you know and that you as a feminist in the 21st century like this sort of sexually free, young, spirited girl. But... If you read the novel, not against the grain, but with the grain, it's a novel about Elizabeth Bennet, filtered through the consciousness of Elizabeth Bennet. There's no question that you're supposed to sympathize with her, identify with her, feel for her, morally deem her to be worthy, to be the rightful heroine. 
unlike Jane, unlike Lydia, unlike Mary, unlike Kitty. <laughs> if if you read this novel in the way, like without trying to resist it in any kind of way, Elizabeth Bennet has to be your favorite character. The chapter ends with Caroline Bingley teasing Darcy for his crush on Lizzie. The text tells us that Mr. Darcy listened with complete indifference to Caroline's teasing. He, like us, only has eyes and ears for Lizzie now. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, Darcy is starting to fall in love with Lizzie. We hang out with Charlotte. What do you feel like we need to know before we jump in? I think we need to talk about conduct and conduct literature and specifically masculinity. So something that we know is that there was an enormous amount of what was called conduct literature at the time that told men and women how to behave, whether they should be polite, whether they should be expressing affection, etc. But one of the things that I was finding and looking into it is, you know, I think that we have this notion that British men are absolutely polite, and that's been part of the culture always. But it turns out that during this period, politeness was seen as very feminine, Chivalry was seen as masculine. You know, the idea that you would fight for a woman, that you would do something for her, that was masculine. But politeness was more a form of sort of soft engagement. And therefore, it was something you would do with a woman. And that was seen as really foppish. And so it's interesting to think about that while reading Darcy's jerkiness, because what to me just seems like incredibly rude at the time may have seemed really hot, right? I mean, this is him just being super, super masculine. And it does make me wonder if the legacy of this sort of, to me, very boorish, obnoxious behavior is something that we have continued to forgive and desire as some form of masculinity. On the flip side of this, this is so much at the core of Charlotte and Lizzie's banter about how much Jane should be expressing her feelings for Bingley because the conduct literature at the time was actually quite divided. Some writers, and as far as I've seen, they're all male, said that, you know, even if a woman is married, she shouldn't express the extent of her love to a husband because that show of emotion would be inappropriate and I think in some way disempowering. And there were others who said, Women need to express more love than even what they feel, more interest than even what they feel to hold a man's heart. And so there's just this dance, these mixed messages that all of the characters in this book are contending with on the page. But Darcy, even though we don't see him in dialogue about it here, I think that he's contending with it, perhaps most of all. Can you give me an example of when you think he's being this boorish English ultra masculine. I have ideas of what that could be, but I would love to just know what you're thinking of. You know, it's his confident refusal to dance. It's his unwillingness to engage in conversation, even when he's being brought into it. There's these two words that I keep thinking of when I think about him now, which are his silent indignation. That's how Jane Austen describes it when he 
is being brought into a social situation, it's incredibly rude. I mean, he's being invited over to someone's house and he's being fed and lavished with attention. And all he can do is just sort of sit there silently and seem entirely displeased with his surroundings. And so no wonder Caroline Bingley says, I bet I know exactly what you're thinking about how like revolting and classless all these people are, because that's exactly how he's behaving. And instead he says, no, to the contrary, I'm falling for Lizzie. Are you essentially saying that Darcy is just the perfect subscriber to these values? Or are you saying that he is both the perfect subscriber to these masculine English values and as a jerk? Well, we don't know, do we? Mm -hmm. I think that as we get to know him later on in the book, he certainly seems less like a jerk. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I may have different ideas about whether that is the mark of his true character and it has been there all along or whether he is reformed. I have to say, I have a really hard time interpreting what Austin is doing a lot of the time here. It feels a little opaque to me. I felt the same way. I found this chapter to be unwieldy. I'm like, I don't know where Austin is trying to point me. You know, I know that Charlotte Lucas is objectively right, that Jane needs to be flirting more. But also the problem with the Bennets are that they embarrass themselves. And Jane has set herself apart from her family in the eyes of the Bingley sisters, at least as being someone who doesn't embarrass herself. And so if she was flirting more, it might not work. And then also with this conversation with Darcy and Lucas, right? There's this really awkward moment where Lucas is talking to Darcy about whether or not he dances at St. James's and whether or not he keeps a house in town. And Darcy bows as a response once, and another time just doesn't answer at all. (laughs) I think, again, it's really unclear as to who she's mocking here or whose side she's on. And even just in saying that, I guess I'm thinking that it it has to be both. That Austin is saying, look how ridiculous it is that Jane is screwed either way. If she flirts or she doesn't flirt, she's screwed. And look how ridiculous it is that the only thing for Sir Lucas to do now that he is a sir is try to figure out what this new position means, and yet is obnoxious and kind of pathetic to watch him try. So it could be, I guess, and I'm wondering what you think of this theory that is just now occurring to me, that what Austin is mocking is not the people, but is the fact that we try to ascribe conduct. Oh, absolutely. I think that she sees the complications of trying to figure out how to be a human in all of these systems, and that these structures that exist work so much against elements of just our natural ways of being and of connecting with each other. I mean, I don't get the sense at all that she is saying, let's just like throw off the cloak of conduct and manners and, you know, run across the moors together. I mean, she's no Bronte. <laughs> but I but I do think it's the sort of Dorothy Parker element of her, which is like, I'm going to show up at the dinner table and chain smoke and drink martinis and totally skewer every single element of this dinner that I choose to participate in. And yes, I will also be here doing it tomorrow night. You know, this sort of 
acceptance of this is how we live. Isn't it rich? Isn't it grand? We're all ridiculous. You know, pass the chicken. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as a reader, it's hard to then feel like we're on solid ground, right? Which perhaps is part of the brilliance of her writing. None of these characters feel like they're on solid ground. They all have mixed messages. They all have this like impossible game to play. But as we are sort of beginning to feel Lizzie emerge as our heroine, things I think are still a little shaky. We're not quite sure who to pay attention to. We're not quite sure who we agree with. We're not quite sure what all of this quippishness and lecturing is about when it comes to who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to think of ourselves and other people. And I think it just feels a little shaky in this in this paragraph. Yeah, Lauren, I just got this visual of everyone going home from this event being like, damn it, I really messed up tonight, right? And I think that to your point, Darcy is the least likely to walk away feeling ashamed. And that's part of why he's so hard to like in this chapter. There's a moment that I know bothered both of us in this conversation between Darcy and Sir Lucas, where Sir Lucas is like, you can't possibly frown on dancing. It's, you know, refined. And and Darcy says essentially, sure, but also every savage can dance. And I was just thinking about that and thinking about that in terms of what you brought us about conduct literature. And I've been thinking more and more that English manners and conduct rules, I'm just curious if it is based in the fact that they felt as though they wanted to separate themselves from the cultures that they were colonizing, that the upper crust of British society didn't just want to be able to keep seeing the difference between them and Sir William Lucas, but also wanted to make very stark the difference between them and the local people in India where they were completely expanding their empire at a violent rate. You know, it's it's almost like they're trying to create a fraternity with a bunch of secret handshakes and describing morality to those secret handshakes, saying it's not that we have a secret handshake because we want to keep other people out. We have all these secret handshakes because that is the correct way to do things rather than this is going to be the way that we amongst each other can suss out who's new money, who comes from someplace that we don't respect and keep their rarefied world completely insular and and maintain their power. And at this exact moment of expanding empire, there's also a lot of writing and discourse around what's called the savage state, which is this notion that what earlier societies looked like. And it looks like feasts and dancing and music. And that that is something that people can evolve from into refined, mannered society. And so not only do I really agree with your theory, I actually think that it's really borne out in the literature of the day. I don't think it's a coincidence that this sort of writing about the so-called savage state is coming about in this time when the so-called savages are being enslaved, when their lands are being 
occupied for pure capital. And when this is all happening from an England that deems itself incredibly moral and incredibly elevated, you know, they need to make a moral case for some sense of higher evolution. And I think that that's all really located in the literature of the time and also in this exact quip of Darcy's. It's also another way of really putting down Lucas at the same time, right? You know, you're this lower order. What do you know about this? I'm more refined than you can even imagine. I'm beyond St. James. And I think that also part of your talking about Darcy is having no shame response to any of these things. That's, of course, totally correlated to his degree of privilege, right? He's got like no skin in the game. There's nothing that he needs to agonize about the end of the day because he's not in want of a wife. He's not in want of anything until his heart tells him so. And everyone else in this game seems to need something except Darcy. What you just said made me think of this conversation that happens in chapter five at Longbourn when the Lucases are over at the Bennets. And Charlotte says, yes, Darcy is really proud and rude, but it doesn't bother me that much because he has the right to be. And there's this idea that there's a certain class of man who's entitled to be that proud and that we're just supposed to deal with it. And this is where we get that great line from Lizzie where, to me, she becomes our heroine because she's so funny and witty and cute and self-deprecating where she says, I could more easily forgive his pride if he didn't mortify mine. I'm just like, oh, I love you. But then there's this conversation as to whether or not Darcy's pride is acceptable. And Lizzie, Lizzie is making this point that, like, it's not acceptable because he hurt my feelings and now I don't like him and therefore it's not acceptable. And Charlotte is like, no, it comes from a certain place and class and, you know, whatever else it is. And then Mary gives us this, I think, great definition of pride. This is what Mary says. Pride, observed Mary, who piqued herself upon the solidity of her reflections, is a very common failing, I believe. By all that I have ever read, I am convinced that it is very common indeed, that human nature is particularly prone to it, and that there are very few of us who do not cherish a feeling of self-complacency on the score of some quality or other, real or imaginary. Vanity and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously, a person may be proud without being vain. And here's, to me, the kicker. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves, vanity to what we would have others think of us. That last line maps perfectly onto Darcy, that he thinks well of himself, but he kind of doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. He's walking around the world. He doesn't care that Caroline Bingley thinks he's about to propose to Lizzie. He couldn't care less what anybody thinks of him. And we will see that again and again, even when he proposes to Lizzie, right? He doesn't seem to be aware that he should care how he's coming across. But he wants to have this opinion of himself as having the perfect manners. Mary sounds so right, doesn't she? And this is another one of these <laughs> funny moments where Austin is showing us how ridiculous and self-important Mary is, right? In all of her reading, you know, we know that that this is how she prides herself is in sort of regurgitating what she's read from the great books and from 
this sort of literature that we've been talking about. And yet, I think she makes a really great point. And I think that she makes a point which is really important to this book. And it's so interesting to me that Austin chooses to put this point in Mary's mouth, that she's saying, look at this like ridiculous, precocious, needy girl who just wants, you know, attention for holding forth because she's not pretty enough to get attention for something else. And yet she's the one who's telling us this thing, which is, I think, so true and is for telling so much of the rest of the book as well in terms of, you know, this pride before a fall moment. It's such a great way of building Mary's character while also giving her something useful to do in this chapter. And I like the fact that she's saying, yes, pride is a universal thing. Pride isn't just for rich people. Pride is is a human impulse and a self-sustaining one at times. And yet it's also Mary's pride, I think, that has her delivering this discourse for us. I just feel like it's such a, a neat little multifaceted prismatic way of handling this lesson. It's also vain of her, right? Yeah. She wants everyone to think that she's smart. <laughs> totally. And I think this is something that I love about her. And I love her as a comic figure. I empathize with her, you know, like this need to be seen in this way. I think that so many of us who love this book love Lizzie and relate to Lizzie on so many levels. And some of us might have a little shock of Lydia in us, too, as we will discuss. (laughs) But there's also this element of the sort of bookish Austin reader, who I think so many of perhaps people who are listening to us talk right now might see themselves in Mary in a way that I just wonder how much Austin understood that or knew that. I wonder if she knew that that this would be a book that would be beloved by the Marys of the world and not just the Lizzies of the world, maybe not even the Lizzies of the world. I mean, we learned that Lizzie barely reads. (laughs) You know, I, I wonder how Austin would have felt about that or if she would have just rolled her eyes about the whole thing. There's also this other moment of Mary, right, with the piano playing. She cares a lot about showing off her piano playing at this ball party at Lucas Lodge. And then Charlotte, I think this moment is so, to use a word that you use a lot and I love, delicious. Charlotte is like, Lizzie, I know what you should do. And Lizzie is like, I don't know why you think this bit is funny. And Charlotte is like, I think you should play the piano. And Lizzie's like, I'm not good at it. And all of these people have seen probably literally Mozart play. And like, why are you doing this to me? And yet Lizzie then sits down and plays and she plays tolerably well. And But just this dynamic between Charlotte and Lizzie, I find so endearing even though it's a little bit mean, but in this safe way, it's it's mean as a sign of intimacy, right? And I love the power of intimacy to create this kind of banter. I love that they aren't biological sisters, but they clearly completely have each other's numbers. And this is another moment where I think Lizzie is emerging as a hero in direct contrast to Mary, who's like, yes, everybody, even though I'm not that good, listen to me play. And Lizzie, I, it's unclear, but like might even be a better player than Mary. And it's like, seriously, I don't want to. 
Well, Austin actually tells us that Mary's a superior player, but that no one really wants to listen to her because she takes herself so seriously. Whereas Lizzie, Lizzie's fun to listen to because Lizzie's fun. And the way that we get to Lizzie actually playing the piano is through fun, through her fun with Charlotte, through that like chosen family vibrancy. And I love it. I love where we find the humor in these dynamics and not just as readers finding what is ridiculous in the book through Austin's eyes, but in these moments of bright humor between characters, especially when love exists there. It's that lightness, not just in Lizzie's figure, but in her manner, <laughs> which I think is so, it's just so delightful. She's so up for being teased, right? At Longbourn in Chapter 5 in this debriefing conversation, it's Charlotte who reminds everybody that Darcy called Lizzie only tolerable, right? (laughs) And, and like, again, that could be read as so mean. Like, she overheard this really hurtful thing, and she's only laughing at it as a defense from hurt. But Charlotte is like, hey, I'm in on this with you. What a jerk, and let's laugh together. And so, yeah, just, like, the power of teasing as a way to show love and intimacy was really interesting to me. And of course, it's Lizzie's love language with her father. This is how she's learned this sort of verbal sparring and this way of being a fun person, which, you know, fun is so important in this book. And fun is so important in this world that Austin is building for us. Like these stakes are so high and the the mores are so confusing and elaborate, but the need for fun at the heart of it, it's really spectacular, I think. And I think it's part of why we respond to this book so much, is it really is in defense, not just of love, but of fun and of like fun within love, right? That's the beauty of this teasing is, of course, Charlotte adores Lizzie, which is why she can say, oh, he thought you were just tolerable because she's obviously saying, and what an idiot, because you're extraordinary. And there's something that feels so fresh and modern about it. I just, it makes me incredibly happy. Lauren, can we talk about these opposing ideas of marriage of Charlotte and Lizzie's and how they come by these opinions? So Charlotte Lucas is like, it doesn't matter if you know someone well, you just got to get married. And whether or not you're going to be happy is just like playing the odds anyway. Everyone changes sufficiently throughout a marriage that you don't really ever know who you're marrying. And this is what we got to do. You got to make offers that you don't really mean and play all the odds. And Lizzie is like, Charlotte, that's ridiculous. And you don't even mean that. Which, first of all, I find very interesting because we're finding out a flaw in Lizzie, which is that she's not seeing her friend, right? Charlotte is very good at seeing Lizzie, about teasing Lizzie, about knowing where her limits are. She's observing Jane. She says, I want nothing but for Jane to be happy, right, with all my heart. But Lizzie is is not listening to what her friend is saying. And I think is quite either naive or playing a weird move where she's like, yeah, I understand your point if we cared about getting married. But like, we don't care about it. We don't have designs on marriage. And I don't know if I find that disingenuous or just completely based in the privilege of beauty or what is going on. But marriage is the only chance that Lizzie has to survive in the world. So I found it confusing at best. 
Well, we know that Charlotte is older. She's not just older. She is elderly. She is 27. It's true. It's true. She is an old... Put her out to pasture. She's an old maid. I mean, I was reading that the legal age for marriage during Austin's time was 12 years old for a girl. (gasps) 12 and 14 for a boy. That doesn't mean that that was the most common age. It was usually that, you know, women would get married in their early 20s. But you you could get married when you were 12. So imagine... Twice 12 is 24. And Charlotte Lucas is 27 years old. And, you know, it's not like she hasn't been on the marriage market. It's not that she hasn't been passed over before. It's not that she hasn't had to think about what her life would be were she to not marry. Whereas Lizzie's younger, Lizzie's lighter and more fun and prettier and all these things that clearly connote desire for other people. And so I think that Charlotte is someone who has a certain sad maturity to her. She's learned the hard way. And I think that she knows that her time has sort of come and gone. We're not going to find out who Lizzie would be feeling unpretty and unloved at 27 and feeling like she needs to make compromises that she can't stand. But what Charlotte Lucas is talking about in the prior moment, this notion that you could just meet someone and be just as happy with them as having gotten to know them through a long courtship, that people age and change over time, who even knows, right? This notion, to me, is a very old world notion, and it's what... Jane Austen is breaking from in this book in many ways. You know, this is the old sort of fiddler on the roof way of looking at the world. This is you'll learn to love him. This is how marriage has been arranged and considered through so much of the world until we start getting the notion of romantic love, which, you know, Austen is not first to discover. We obviously had the Renaissance. (laughs) We had Shakespeare. We've had people with hearts and desires for a long, long time. But in terms of looking at marriage as something more than an economic model, looking at it in terms of happiness and companionship, looking at it as a meeting of the minds and hearts and not just a meeting of fortunes and land, Between these two women, there does seem to be a bit of a generational split here, which seems born on the back of some sort of need and some sort of idealism that they each live out in very different ways. But I don't think Austin thinks it's as simple as this is the old way of getting married and we need to marry for love now, right? Because Mr. and Mrs. Bennett thought they were in love. I mean, we'll look more closely at this in a, in a chapter really soon, I think, where we find out essentially that he married her because he thought she was pretty. And they care about each other, but it is not a good marriage, right? And maybe I am just a cynic, but I take Charlotte's point. I want everybody to like and love each other at the beginning of their marriages, but we like and love the wrong person all the time. And I don't think Charlotte's right that you're just as likely to love a stranger off the street as someone who you vetted a little. But I do think that the book has given us a complicated idea of that. I don't think Austin completely agrees with Lizzie. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that she's setting out two different ways of looking at something. One that is the deeper roots of marriage in society and one which is sort of coming out of this romantic moment. But I think that this is both what can be confusing about Austen and also part of the genius of what she does in this book is never just saying, here's the one path, here's the easy way, this is the ideal, this is what our purpose should be. I feel like she's so opposed to that way of approaching things and that she's examining these existing systems, but seeing how they're really different for different people and how people have different needs and desires and how people are equipped either genetically or financially to find themselves in very different places in the same game. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Lauren, there's just one other place that I think is worth talking about in terms of of power and love, which is at the end of the chapter, right, Darcy and Caroline Bingley have this conversation in which Darcy essentially says, I'm beginning to have feelings for Elizabeth Bennet. I'm contemplating what a, a pair of fine eyes can do for a face. And I'm thinking about Lizzie. And Caroline starts not lovingly like Charlotte to Lizzie, but really quite viciously teasing Darcy. And it doesn't phase Darcy, but I think that what Caroline is doing comes from a really real place. It breaks my heart a little bit for Caroline, and I don't know if I'm doing what Tara Menon warned us against of reading against the grain. I know we're supposed to hate Caroline, and I just can't hate her in this moment. She's counting on marrying Darcy. She's setting her hopes really high. It's like counting on becoming a billionaire. It is not a fair assumption and not a fair entitlement that she has. And yet she's watching the guy that she has a crush on maybe fall in love with someone else. And that's hard. I adore you for your empathy. I do. I really do. <laughs> I pity you for your naivete. <laughs> no, no, I, I do not mean that in a condescending way at all. I truly adore you for your empathy because I just see her as like, Whoever is James Spader's girlfriend with blonde feathered hair and an Oxford shirt, keeping Molly Ringwald out of every party. I mean, like, 
I just see her as such a class gatekeeper. I see her as such a snob. Oh, yeah. Her way of like saying, oh, I can see that your mother-in-law will be around the house at Pemberley all the time. I mean, it is just so grotesque to me and so snotty and so bitchy that even if it's from a place of vulnerability, I feel like, you know what, honey, you are rich and you are beautiful and you can have whatever you want and you just don't want this girl sullying your front door. You do not want her fingerprints on your silver. And I just find it so revolting. I can't stand her. Oh, Lauren, I love that point. I mean, I think that the answer can be both, which you included my answer in your answer, right? It might be from a place of vulnerability, but I think you're absolutely right that class gatekeeping is part of it here. And that Caroline, to some extent, is saying, I'll let Jane cross the threshold because she's so pretty and so humble. But even Lizzie is a little difficult for her to be like, you can jump the gate. Ugh, I hate it. Is there anything that you are excited about? Next episode, we are going to be reading chapters seven and eight. I am excited for two big things. Okay. Dirty hems and the entail. <laughs> You know, these are two big chapters. Money, money, money. Money, class, acting inappropriately in ways that I feel liberated by. It's just, I can't wait. We're going to really get into it. So we mentioned that that line, Darcy's line, every savage can dance earlier in the episode. And it just really had us thinking that it, it felt really important to understand what the word savage would have meant to Austin's readers, where Austin was coming from, what the historical context of, of that line might be. So we reached out to a professor named Kate Fuligar, who is a historian at Australian Catholic University who specializes in the history of the 18th century world, particularly the British Empire and the many indigenous societies it encountered. Her new book is called The Warrior, the Voyager, and the Artist, which sounds fascinating. But we just wanted to drop in and sort of get a sense, if we could get her on the phone, about what this word meant then. Hi, Kate. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Good to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us. So, you know, We've been reading Pride and Prejudice, and we encountered this sentence that Darcy says about how every savage can dance. And I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about when people were first referred to savages by English people and how that word spread, what it meant? Yeah, sure. Definitely. I, I have written quite a lot about savagery as an idea and the kind of the etymology of it as well. But I have to say, I never picked it up in Austen books, so... It was interesting when you reached out and told me that it was also there. So savagery has a very interesting and kind of long history. Today, it has almost overwhelmingly negative connotations. It's just sort of a synonym for cruelty and ferocity. But that's not how it was earlier on. It had started being used throughout Europe with its various kind of versions in different European languages from about the 15th or 16th century, so through maybe the Renaissance period, we might call it. That's the first time it's used to refer to humans. So before that, it would be used to describe a non-human kind of wilderness, really. 
But in the, from the Renaissance, it starts to be used to refer to humans, not necessarily yet with purely negative connotations, but really to emphasise, first of all, its kind of otherness, because it comes out of wilderness where humans are not expected to be, therefore to call someone a savage is to emphasise that they're different from what we expected, they were other than what we are. Uh, and one of the things I found through the sort of 17th, 18th century, which is where I was tracking, is that there are a lot of positive usages of the word savagery through the 18th century. And I kind of was tracking the way that it was used by imperialists, particularly by British imperialists. So, so through the 18th century, that is an empire that is burgeoning, growing a lot. And of course, the most dynamic activity of their empire was in America. And it's Native Americans who most get this word, savagery. But as the empire becomes more and more successful and more and more inevitable, so by the time that Austin's employing that word, it has kind of secured its rather negative connotation, partly because it, it has to try and explain that the people we've just taken over and completely dispossessed obviously are not people who could, you know, have the rights to fight back. And so increasingly more negative words get applied to it. So when Darcy brings it up in terms of dancing, that seems to be adding another element to this. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how this notion of savagery seemed to be applied to cultural traditions like dance and what Darcy might be saying when he takes this very sort of mannered ball setting of people doing these very formal dances and bringing in the notion that every savage can dance. What What is he saying there, do you think? And why does it rankle us so much? Yeah. Well, clearly he's using it in a negative way. And Austin is playing on the idea that by now everyone knows that that is an insult. So there's no ambivalence kind of thinking, oh, maybe you Darcy has this interesting kind of take on how we should be admiring noble savagery. Everyone knows that it's not the case anymore by the time Austin employs it. So he's being a dick by using it, obviously. <laughs> and what he is implying is that this is something that is part of a state of nature. So there's no polish, civility, there's no culture involved in what these British people are doing or anyone is doing when they're dancing. But I have to say that earlier in the 18th century, before Darcy's using it, some people looked upon that quality of being natural rather than cultured as really positive and looked around at an increasingly mannered British society that had increasing multiplying rules about etiquette and correct form and who was what and which class you were in and in the know by looking at the way that you wore your jacket. All those things were actually signs of decadence and, and a problem of a, an overly sophisticated society that was bound to fall. Right. And so for the people who are worried about that, worried about a British society that is just becoming so mannered and silly, they would employ the word savagery as a kind of wistful, nostalgic word and say, actually, we should probably admire the Indigenous peoples who don't fuss so much about all this fluff, this sort of epiphenomenon about on top of society that's all just sort of silly etiquette. So that, that's an example of how savagery had once been used, kind of invoking an idea of noble savagery. That's obviously not what Darcy means. Darcy is very proud of a British empire that has become so elaborate and complicated that he thinks it's a shining pinnacle of what human society is all about, that it is, has evolved the most, right? So then he invokes savagery to say, you know, this is not what we should be descending back into. 
And of course, the whole notion of the noble savage is problematic as well. But I think that your point being that this is the whole creation of so-called civilization, right, as a way to create difference, to power the imperialist project in the English or other European imagination. That's right. I wonder what you think Austen's readers would have thought of that. Would they have read this line and thought, oh, Darcy's awful? Is is this line there to make him look awful or to make him look powerful, do you think? I think that it's a it's a double-edged joke. I think that because the sort of the plain joke is that, you know, when we see Regency era dances, it looks incredibly mannered and incredibly practiced. And you have to have thousands of lessons in order to do it well. And, and they go on for ages, like each dance is about half an hour or so. So the joke is that, of course, that's incredibly complicated. And then Darcy's coming along saying it's not not complicated. It's just your kind of gut instinct, which is horrible. But then some people may also be chuckling along with Darcy because they're also sort of agreeing that maybe we shouldn't be thinking so much about kind of the trivialities of British society, which is just sort of being manifested in a dance we should be thinking more serious thoughts and and turning again to what Darcy represented, which is the sort of the, the landed property kind of base of the empire, the true kind of core of empire, which is people like him who maintain the wealth <laughs> and the stability of an empire so that people can go out and uh, plunder and bring back certain luxuries that allow the, the sort of the top of society to develop these kind of etiquette, polite social forms, including dancing. So, you know, I think I think quite a lot's going on there. As ever, Dostin's always saying more than I actually assumed at, at the beginning. Eventually, of course, we relearn that Darcy's a pretty good dancer himself and we learn that, of course, he is both and everything. You know, he is the stable core of the empire, plus he has perfected all the little arts of it as well. Yeah. You know, when I was reading, you're writing about this topic, you write about the American colonies a lot and about the decline of interest in what is seen as a so-called savage population after the American Revolution, after 1776, and as the English have stepped out of the new world in this way. It's such an interesting moment in terms of American history when Austin is writing this book. And I was wondering, you know, if so much of this understanding of what so-called savagery is, is around Native Americans and that colonial experiment, what does it mean to be thinking about it, say, 15 years after, 20 years after when Austin is writing this book? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I do think that, you know, through most of, I'd say, the 17th and 18th centuries, for, for British people particularly, savagery, that the nearest kind of example, and, I, and I, I do emphasize that they themselves know that this is a stereotype, it's an idea. But when they do think of an examples, they generally think of Native Americans, because that's the peoples that they're probably most dynamically trying to be involved with. I mean, that they also are in, involved in uh, the subcontinent, But Indian people generally have different types of stereotypical names associated with them because they have what what the British perceive as civilizations that have degraded. And and but when they go to the Americas, they think this is early civilizations, right? Or no civilizations. But I do I, I argue in my in my first book that with the loss of America through the American Revolution, in popular culture as an idea, the the concept of savagery is no longer kind of interestingly linked to Americans because America is kind of gone for them. (laughs) So in order for it to be a powerful kind of word that can allow them to talk politically about their own empire and about who's 
polished and who's not, which is really what the basic idea of savagery is or the way that people want to use it. For the British people, their geographical mindset switches to what we call the South Pacific, which is where the British Empire sets its sights after it knows it's lost its Atlantic-based empire. And so from the 1790s, or from 1788 really, Britain is moving strongly into South Pacific, first colonising New South Wales, what will later become Australia, but also setting its sights on certain particular Pacific islands. And when they encounter Indigenous people there, they think, oh, now we've got another exemplar for savagery. And actually these, these people are better exemplars because they don't seem to own quite so much land that we really want, so we can afford to keep them in this, as we think of it, silly idea of noble savagery, right? So in the British Empire, I think there's a switch from Native Americans as the kind of exemplar of savagery to Pacific Islanders, even Australian Aboriginal people, through the 1790s period. I'm, I'm certain that Austin would have been thinking not solely, therefore, about Native American people, if she was thinking about any actual peoples, but also Pacific Islanders, who had by this stage come to Britain, so um, she would have heard about that. I'm thinking that one of the lines that she's actually got in mind is Boswell's Life of Johnson, so she's probably been uh, reading that, And there's a sort of a reasonably famous line in that, which is actually a very Darcy line, where Boswell's saying, oh, these travels of Captain Cook are so inspiring to me. I think I might go on the next Cook voyage and I'm going to go and have a look at all these noble savages because they're so incredibly interesting to me. And Johnson's like, no, no, don't don't do that. That's stupid. Don't cant in defence of savages. Let's not talk about savages anymore. It's boring to me. And in, in that sense, it kind of goes along that savages are all the same, there has got no cultural interest in them. So therefore, I don't want to waste time talking about them anymore. Oh, it's, not, it's so Darcy. Yeah, yeah. It's so Darcy. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, that way yeah. of dismissing, you know, the yeah. world. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Move on to what I want to talk about. Exactly. And elevate himself in terms of doing it. Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you for having me, guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. We are a small show, so we do need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production, and our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our highest level Jane patrons. Viscountess Elise Kenagontum of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leia B of Pickleshire, Duchess Two Cats of Philofaxia, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Betty Higgins of The Bubble Bath. Special thanks this week to Roxanne Eberly, Aisha Ramachandran, Tara Menon, and Kate Fulliger for talking to us. Thanks, as always, to Lara Glass, Gabby Iori, AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. We'll talk to you in two weeks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com